if the work is really well defined, like I'm just asking you follow instructions, do it alone, do it exactly, then I'm sorry to say it, but fear will not get in the way of your execution. Everything will be just fine. But now, if instead the work has a need for judgment, if there's uncertainty, if no one's ever done exactly this particular task before, if it's interdependent with other people, then fear is absolutely at odds with good performance. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to a special summer edition of Punk Rock HR. All summer long, we'll be bringing you encore episodes of Punk Rock HR that I absolutely love. We've re-edited them, remixed them, we've made them a little fresh, but the conversation is really important. So if you've missed the episode the first time around, or you heard it, but you want to hear a fresh take, sit back and enjoy the special summer encore edition of Punk Rock HR. I'm Amy Edmondson. I am a professor at Harvard Business School, where I've been for two decades. And I'm all about making the workplace better and even more specifically, making the workplace more conducive to voice, to speaking up, to bringing your full self to work. Well, there's a lot in there and you've written a really great book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book that you've recently written? Sure. The book is called The Fearless Organization, which is probably a stretch. We will probably never have, maybe we don't even want a completely fearless organization. But what I'm talking about is the creation of psychological safety, where psychological safety is a description of a climate where people really do feel that their voice is welcome. And even more specifically, they know they not only can, but they're expected to bring their ideas, their questions, their concerns, and even their failures to the table. Yeah, that's a tall order, but also very optimistic. Can you tell us why you wrote the book? Well, I wrote it because many organizations are fearful organizations, and that's a problem. And it's a problem for two reasons. One is, of course, just the these are human beings who, you know, living and working in a state of fear is not optimal personally, but as important, it's not optimal for the business or the or the agency. It's absolutely crazy if you think about it to hire people who are smart, thoughtful, maybe even, you know, driven, motivated, but who are holding back because you're leaving you're leaving knowledge on the table. You're leaving value behind. In my research, I would have to say most organizations are erring on the fear side. You know that the psychologically safe climate is still a rarity and it's one that we can show is quite powerful. I wrote it because Increasingly, I think people need to understand that our human instincts, and especially our human instincts in hierarchies, are at odds with our organizational goals. So more specifically, just a couple of human instincts. An instinct to agree with the boss. We can all understand what that means. It's dangerous because the boss is not going to be the person with the greatest insight or the most information about the topic at hand. The instinct to not want to fail, which means not take risks, which means not innovate, right? So those are sort of very understandable, very human instincts, and they're utterly at odds with what's needed today. 
Well, I don't disagree with you, but before we start to go on about your book and the awesome research that you've done, I'd like to just define psychological safety. I think it can have a lot of different meanings depending on your attitudes, your affectations, your family of origin, right? So how do you define psychological safety? I tend to define it in the negative, and I hope this is okay, but I define it as a belief that I will not be humiliated or punished in any way for speaking up with work-relevant stuff, Wow, work-relevant ideas, concerns questions, even mistakes. Isn't that antithetical to most HR processes and most businesses these days? Because everything we do in the organization rewards people who do what we tell them and conform to a way of belief. And then if they deviate from the norm, we put them through a really humiliating performance management process often. It's true. and, And that's deeply counterproductive. And we can sit here and point to companies that were once dominant, whether it's the Polaroids, the Kodaks, the Kmarts, that were absolutely dominant in their industry that fell by the wayside, the kind of corporate graveyard, if you will. And most of those have done so not by you know massive screw-ups, but by ensuring conformity to the way we've always done things as the world is changing around them. Interesting, interesting. All right. So psychological safety is the ability to go to work and not be humiliated, to be creative, (laughs) to have an opportunity to fail. Can you speak a little bit more to the fear of failure and the fear of consequences at work? Why is it so bad? I mean, we've been operating for millennia in a way, in a hermeneutic of fear. This is how we raise children. This is how we live in the world. Why is this bad? Well, it's not bad in an ethical sense, right? It's bad in a pragmatic sense the more you really live in the knowledge economy. So let me be clear. It's if the work, this is a kind of counterfactual, if the work is really well-defined, like I'm just asking you follow instructions, do it alone, do it exactly, then I'm sorry to say it, but fear will not get in the way of your execution. Everything will be just fine. But now, if instead the work has a need for judgment, if there's uncertainty, if no one's ever done exactly this particular task before, if it's interdependent with other people, then fear is absolutely at odds with good performance for two reasons. One, cognitively, we know the neuroscientists tell us that when you're in a state of fear, the brain diverts resources from those activities that are needed to work with short-term memory, to do analytic judgment, to do problem solving. So your brain just isn't working as well in a state of fear. And number two, you're going to hold back you know, to stay safe when you should be playing to win, right? You should be well, what if, you know, let's try this and I should be really listening to you and I should be willing to speak with you for us to do a good job. So again, I think the percentage of jobs and tasks that are in the former category where just do what we tell you, don't ask questions, do it to spec are shrinking. Hmm. Okay. Is that true or is that true in America? Because I think I think of a company like Nike, right? And they represent something that I've heard called woke capitalism, where they're all about social justice, corporate responsibility. And yet, most of the work done by Nike is done in sweatshops, Mm -hmm. factories where they're paying people below the living wage all across the globe. And so I wonder how we reconcile psychological safety and corporate social responsibility with just marketing. Is this just marketing? (laughs) Yeah, this is a much bigger 
bigger issue. And your question goes to the very essence of capitalism, really. There is a almost religious adherence to the idea that more profitable is better, and that will invariably drive jobs to lowest wage places. So Nike would be a good example. The actual manufacturing can and probably should be done in a quite repetitive manner. We want those shoes to be made to spec each and every time. And of course, the design and the marketing and all of the creative work that happens, these are better jobs. These are jobs where psychological safety really truly matters. So there is this split here. And I'm neither qualified nor equipped to fully debate the merits of full-on religious capitalism, but I completely understand the, the split you're making. And the only thing I can say in response that's at all hopeful is that even in highly repetitive jobs, like say the automotive assembly line, Toyota has shown us in spades that even there with you know 57 second cycle times and you're going to do the exact same thing over and over and over 400 times today, even there, we do better if we ask you what you're noticing, what you're seeing. Are you seeing anything that could be done better? Are you seeing anything out of place that you can catch and correct right now? So even in the most extreme of routine work, conditions, we still want your brain in the game. Yeah. Just in a different way. We want your brain to see how you can make things better, not what fundamentally should we be doing instead of this. Yeah, I I love that. And I wonder if you have other examples of organizations that you've worked with or you've researched that are really leading the way in creating an organization that has psychological safety. I mean, I think many organizations or at least a growing number of organizations are trying. If they're trying and they're starting the trying at the very top, then you tend to see a thoughtful and, and productive learning process where you know someone at the top is recognizing, you know, we really do need to get people's brain in the game and we want this to be a place where people jump out of bed and show up in the morning ready to give their ideas express their concerns and so on. And then they will say, gee, I need to figure out how to do that with my team. And then those folks will say, I need to figure out how to do that with my team. In some ways, yeah, that's the waterfall the, effect. Yeah. The waterfall effect. That's right. the best of all possible situations. I don't always see that, certainly. Yeah. But what I do see instead is someone gets this idea in you know one branch of a big organization, one department, one large team and says, let's just make this the best possible team, branch, restaurant it can be. And the reality of psychological safety is it's not monolithic. I mean, it does it does tend to be a very local phenomenon. Few of us are working together interdependently. It's like a little mini community within the larger organization. I have a sense of belonging to the larger organization, but this is my team, right? And, and so psychological safety tends to be quite variable across groups in an organization and quite consistent. Our perceptions within a group will be highly similar to each other. You know, that resonates with me in terms of my experience in human resources because you'll go to a branch or a local division of a company. And while they are affiliated with the corporate brand, they have a different climate on the ground. And the leader is willing to take one for the team and deal with all the corporate flack and all of the nonsense that happens in New York or San Francisco in order to create a local climate. What is it about that leader that makes that individual so special and willing to do that? 
I think they're smart, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, all right. And and maybe it's, you know, it's worth pointing out that when I stumbled into this concept, it wasn't because I invented it, brought it into the workplace and said, here, do this. Right. I stumbled into it because I saw people doing exactly what you just said. Yeah. And in seeing them doing it, I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I said, does it matter? You know, and over the years was able to get plenty of data to say, yes, it does matter. Why does it matter? Well, the people in those stores, restaurants, teams are learning more than other people. Hmm, Well, let's see if that matters. Well, yeah, it turns out they're performing better than other people. So these leaders, you know, these leaders in the middle have figured out that they want their group, their part of the organization to be engaged, dynamic, energized, and candid. I sometimes think if I had to do it all over again, so I'll do it now, I'd keep emphasizing the word candor because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a sort of let it all hang out. We're talking about can we be direct because there's a lot at stake here. That word candor is so interesting to me because there are businesses that build in the cost of doing business in terms of losing good people. They say, we know we're going to lose good people. We're just going to build that in. Or we know we're going to have accidents. Or we know we're going to have faulty products or whatever. And they literally... In a very mediocre way, major corporations build that into the cost of doing business. And yet you have a leader on the front line in Paducah, Kentucky or Kalamazoo, Michigan, who says, no, I'm going to do it differently. It's it's being smart and it's being candid, I hear you saying. It's having these qualities that make them see things differently. Yes. And it's being aware. I mean, I think there's a certain awareness, maybe woke, there's an awareness that, wow, look around. We live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. It's not... a world in which top-down processes, you know, command and control are going to win the day anymore because the people at the top don't have all the answers. It's more about how do I create the conditions whereby we can show up and do the work we need to do, but also keep thinking about how will we be doing it better tomorrow? I love that. I'm so glad you brought up candor because in your book, you talk about the use of humor to create a climate in the work environment. And we have examples of humor where people can relate to one another and joke around. And then we have Michael Scott or David Brent from the UK version of The Office. So can you talk a little bit about the role of humor in creating psychological safety and when it backfires? You bet. So, I mean, there's, I think, one kind of humor, which is the kind of humor, and the office, of course, is full of it, that mocks others or another is deeply counterproductive to the goal of creating psychological safety. It'll put people on edge. You know, you just know that, God, if I step one iota out of line into something that might be seen as foolish by my colleagues, I'm never going to hear the end of it. Or you have that sense. And we all have those deep-rooted memories and emotions from childhood, and it will make people very risk-averse and very likely to simply conform. So humor that mocks, humor that makes people feel less good about themselves is counterproductive. The kind of humor that says, we're all in this boat together and it's a funny boat, right? Is the kind that helps us just relax. We are all fallible human beings. We're going to mess up. We're going to get things wrong, but we're in it together. The kind of humor that leads us to feel like part of the same team is the kind that just allows us to relax a little. I don't have to be perfect. I love that you're removing the shame of failure. This is part of my life's journey. You know, like if you fail out loud and you remove the shame of it, you can make other people feel comfortable with their own failings, their own humanness, right? I mean, we all fail to your point. That's part of being human. And yet we have to get people comfortable with stepping up and being brave and being courageous. 
So I wonder if you can tell us some stories about organizations that have worked diligently to create an environment where speaking up is enabled and expected. So a couple that come to mind because, and and failure, I I always, I I do want to say that, you know, there are better and worse kinds of failure. You know, I can fail to turn that paper in on time. And, you know, unless something really catastrophic just happened in my life, that's on me and it should not be celebrated or rewarded. Probably shame is never a terribly productive response, but I know how to write a paper. You know, I had what I needed to do it. I just didn't do it. That's a failure. Yeah. You don't deserve to be congratulated. Right. I don't that failure. Part, right? <laughs> right. Whereas the kind of failure that is truly worth celebrating is the new foray in new territory. And I thought it would work. Like I thought, hey, let's try this. We tried it and it failed. Uh, yes. But we truly couldn't have known that in advance. Yeah. Right. And so those failures not only deserve, they need to be celebrated because they're new knowledge and they're the kind of new knowledge that if we get it first, it's valuable. You'd think, well, that's kind of obvious intellectually, but emotionally, our brains don't do a good job of separating. You know, I don't like failure. Even if I'm a scientist in the very most leading edge lab in the world, I still would rather my experiment succeeded than failed. And yet the whole point of an experiment is it could go either way. So we need to kind of get our emotions to catch up with our intellect in those circumstances. So that brings me to a couple of examples. Pixar would be a wonderful example. And again, we can readily appreciate that most of what they do is both creative, which is necessarily new. You're creating something new that's appealing and technologically very sophisticated. They're the people who figured out, the computer scientists who figured out how to make hair look curly in Rapunzel or what have you. So these are very technically challenging algorithms and problems. So they figured out, Ed Catmull, co-founder and longtime CEO, figured out that we can't really do this kind of very creative, very sophisticated work unless people feel free to be candid. They got to feel free to offer crazy ideas. They also, and importantly, have to feel free to offer candid feedback. And so Katma will go out of his way to say, early on, all movies, certainly all of our movies are bad, right? When you first start drawing them or you first start developing pieces and segments, they're terrible. Maybe they're sappy. Maybe they're boring. They're just not good. The way they get good is by continuous refinement and pushback and, okay, let's try it this way. And and so what he's saying is you can't be excellent unless you're candid. And the only way to be candid is to reinforce a set of guidelines, like help people understand that it's got to come from a place of empathy. If I were in your shoes, I probably would have created that sappy scene also. I get it. I empathize. It's a peer. I'm not a boss. You know, even if I am in this moment, I'm not. So certain guidelines that are put in place to help us do what is fundamentally unnatural, you know, which is to say something somewhat negative Mm -hmm. to your face, you know, when the easy thing to do is just to say something nice to your face. Right. And then later on in the hallway, I'll tell my other friend what I really think. Yeah, that ruinous empathy that we've heard about in the media. Absolutely. You know, Pixar, though, to me, is a complicated example because Pixar was swept up in the Me Too movement and some of those instances that happened there. And I think psychological safety happens oftentimes for people who are producing and people who are of value or people who are in the majority group, but it doesn't often happen for women and minorities. And so this is one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today because I think 
when we talk about psychological safety, it's a big, broad statement, right? I've heard leading human resources professionals talk about it with passion, like Claude Silver at VaynerMedia. Like she loves it and I love it for her. But <laughs> sometimes I feel like psychological safety is good for one group, but women, minorities, people of the LGBT community don't have the same experience with it. So can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you're describing reality. Yeah. <laughs> and what we're talking about here today is how do we do better than reality? How do we do better than the norm? Because the norm is not good. And it is especially just sit back and think how very wasteful what you just described is. You know, that means fully 50% and probably more of the talent is not getting heard, expressed, put to good use. And so I think thoughtful people, Claude and others, are eager to do better. And I don't think anyone, I mean, well, I shouldn't say, but I I certainly personally, I don't mean to say, let's have this for select groups and not for others. The Pixar story is, as so often the case, just deeply disappointing. Yes. You know, it's like Charlie Rose. It's like deeply disappointing. None of us, I think, want to read those stories. And yet they're true. And so what we need to do is help companies, including Pixar, CBS, not get themselves into that foolish mess in the first place because it's expensive and stupid and painful. It is. All of that is so true. And I wonder as we start to wrap up our conversation today, if you can give us some thoughts on how leaders can create that fearless organization. What does it look like? What can they do, whether they're the CEO or the franchise manager? There are some core concepts that you talk about in your book, and I would love for you to share those today. Sure. So I'll say three, right? Set the stage, invite participation, and respond productively. So set the stage is this all this wonderful stuff of reminding us that we live in this complex, uncertain world. If I'm constantly saying, hey, I don't have a crystal ball. What am I saying? I'm saying, I need to hear from you. Like your guess is as good as mine. Let's bring the data forward. Or I don't know how customers are going to react to this scene or this product. What do you think? How can we find out? Right. So you're always emphasizing that you know that you don't have all the answers, right? Because that's kind of setting the backdrop for why voice matters. But that's not enough. The second thing is you've got to ask questions. Hey, what are you seeing out there? And preferably by name. Like you were on last night. What did you see? And then the third is when people bring you bad news, almost more important than anything, your immediate emotional response will be something maybe even that I won't say on air, but you've got to take a deep breath, stop, challenge that immediate response and say, thank you so much for their clear line of sight. Let's put our heads together. What are we going to do about it? So kind of stopping those natural but potentially devastating and silencing reactions to bad news that are all too human. Wow. It made me think as you were describing all that, that being a leader is so different than it was even 10 years ago. And it requires such an exceptional and extraordinary skill set. How do people learn? How do they learn to be a leader these days? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's funny. And I think more and more people... I was talking to someone from McKinsey earlier today. When they talk about the aspect of leadership development they do that starts with self. I think more and more thoughtful people are recognizing that true leadership starts with self-awareness, you know, self-control, which then allows you to be more able to be other aware, which of course is what leaders must do. You know, and there's a lot now about emotional intelligence, but being able to read others, being able to help others, understanding that fundamentally as a leader, your job is to harness the efforts of others. 
You don't have all the answers. You can't do all the work yourself. Your job is to harness the efforts of others. And people will only give their effort voluntarily. You know, they'll do what they have to do when you're watching, but they won't really (laughs) be, you know, all in to give it their full attention and creativity unless they want to be there. How do leaders have to show up such that others want to be there? That's, I mean, think about when you show up, when do you really want to be there? And it's not going to be when you're afraid and it's not going to be because some smart aleck thinks he knows everything, right? You'll go through the motions. That Amy, I can see why you are beloved by your (laughs) colleagues, your peers, and your students. I just absolutely enjoyed this conversation. If people want to connect with you online and find out more about your research or read your books, where can they find you? I guess the best place to start is hbs.edu and find my faculty homepage, Amy Edmondson. That'll point you to articles and books and other things. But the, the Fearless Organization is the most recent book, and I hope people will read it. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Punk Rock HR. Whether you're new to it or you heard it before, everything you need is always in the show notes and you can find them at laurierudeman.com forward slash punk rock HR. Now, I hope you're having a great summer and it was an honor to spend some time with you today. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. <laughs>